Over the past 15 years of participating in the leadership of churches through pastoring and through preaching, I can say that I've seen numerous stages in the life of churches. I've been a part of churches from church plants to restarts. I've been a part of churches through schisms and closures. I've gotten to witness both the birthing and the demise of church families. And one of the interesting things about, uh, about churches and observing churches in all these various stages is the general attitude of a church family in their sense of what I call their sense of arrival. The sense of we've made it. That uh, we're a church now or we're a good church now. Uh, it may be a moment when they complete a building project and now they say, okay, we have a building Now we're a real church. It may be that they can say, hey, we forgot a full-time pastor now. He can do everything. So we can sit back and enjoy because we've made it. Maybe it's an attitude of, you know, we've spent decades reaching to this community. We've, We've tried and tried and tried. And surely we deserve a break. We've been faithful, so let's take a break. Maybe it's as simple as, hey, we sent a missionary. We fulfilled Matthew 28. We're reaching the nations. That's it. Let's wait for Messiah to return. Or, well, the world's dark and doomed anyways. So let's just hold up and wait for Jesus to return. As we continue to focus then on our vision for building the church, we now come to this interesting passage in Nehemiah. I'd like to thank Verlin for offering me this passage. I enjoy interesting passages. And when a passage like this is, is come upon, um, it's often that we, we skip this. As soon as we start hitting words we can't pronounce, which are typically names, We go, numbers, words, numbers, and you keep scanning until you see the numbers and names disappear, and then you pick up and start reading again. A more fun experiment is for you to try to read them out loud. Because when you read them silently, you get them all right every time. Right? You hear it in your head like, oh yeah, that's from Ichkabibble, and and you go down your list. And so I was grateful that that this was presented because this is such an important passage in understanding Nehemiah, understanding the context of the Old Testament, bringing to conclusion for us the judgment that came upon Israel when they were exiled. This is tying a bow that's really important for us to understand. And as modern readers, it's important for us to understand what this is. Now, we're not going to go into detail of reading all these names and trying to figure out who they are and what they mean. But that doesn't mean that this passage is not critical for our understanding of this context. So, for the sake of time, we're not going to go through those names. But I encourage you to take the time and to read them at some point this week, to understand the weight of what's being said. So from last week, we learned that the Israelites have completed their building project. 
They have built their wall from here to Fort Ontario in 52 days. Now those who don't know, I work professionally as an engineer. And I've worked my entire career on public works projects. Projects from bridges to roads to sewers to water mains to parks. 52 days to build anything from here to Fort Ontario is miraculous. It takes me more than 52 days to get a permit. And I work for the city. Engineers, architects aren't the fastest workers. It takes them years to develop plans. It's taken me a year to repaint my downstairs. I'm still not done. If the goal of Nehemiah was to build a wall, which is how it's often portrayed, as we've learned, the book of Nehemiah is often delivered as it's a book about a wall. If that was what this book is about, the book should have ended here. Before we even got to this list, it should have ended. Many would have had the sense at this moment, we made it. We're done. We have a wall. But Nehemiah knew better. Nehemiah knew that the physical rebuilding of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, may have reached a significant point, but that the spiritual rebuilding was just beginning. By this point in our narrative, when you read Nehemiah, one of the things you need to do, and this is in your personal studies, if you haven't done this yet, I need you to do it, is to read Ezra with it. Ezra came first, and then Nehemiah. And by this point, Ezra has overseen the rebuilding of the temple. They've rediscovered the Torah. And now, the walls have been built. So when we come to chapter 7 in Nehemiah, we are coming to a critical point of a lot of time of work, a lot of years of labor and sacrifice to get them to this point. And there is much here for them to celebrate. But both Ezra and Nehemiah knew the work of rebuilding Israel was just beginning. And that is no different for us. We can look back over the history of our church and where we stand today. We can point to times of constructing new buildings to house our family. We can point to times of renewal that inspired us to continue the good work that God has for us. And some of us may be tempted to say that our church has arrived. Our, church is, our work is done. We're kind of in this maintenance mode and we're just you know, kind of carrying business as usual. But family, I think we can agree with Ezra and Nehemiah and we can agree together that the work is not done. There is much to do before we can call a Swiggle Alliance complete. And truthfully, and this is critical, truthfully, our goal is not completion. Our goal is to be found faithful when Christ returns. 
to be found faithful in the work that we're doing. We will be engaged in this process of growth, renewal, and change until that day. Therefore, as we continue to focus on our vision for building our church, I want us to take into view what Nehemiah does in this pivotal chapter. And there are, in summary, there are two things. He raises up faithful leaders and builds a faithful family. First, we're going to look at raising up faithful leaders. We're going to reread verses 1-3. through Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor, of the castle charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. While they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. Nehemiah recognized that walls are only a passive protection against enemies. Walls don't say anything. Walls don't do anything but sit there. They're passive. The weak points in a wall are where? The gates. If you're going to attack a city in the ancient world, you attack the gates. So in those spots, he knew that he needed faithful men from inside the city to guard the gates and make sure the gates were safe. These are men who are not easily bribed. Men who are committed to the mission of rebuilding Israel and protecting Jerusalem. And for the church, we have the same need. We require the same solution. When the Apostle Paul encountered, or when he planted churches, his goal was to make them healthy and and to make them complete in this respect. Of paramount importance to that goal was to raise faithful, godly leaders to protect to serve, and to disciple the family. The role of the gatekeeper, the role of the protector, is given to the elder. Now, when you hear that term, it's slightly different than how our church uses the word elder, so I want to explain it a little bit. But first, the role of an elder is one of doctrinal and family protection. That is, one who protects doctrine, what we believe, and also protects us from false teachers and false belief. Alexander Strzok offers the following definition of what a biblical elder is. According to the New Testament concept of eldership, elders lead the church, teach and preach the word, protect the church from false teachers, exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine, visit the sick and pray, and judge doctrinal issues. In biblical terminology, elders shepherd, oversee, lead, and care for the local church. A biblical, healthy church is protected and led by a plurality of godly men who are called elders. Family, those who we call pastor, when we use that term, are what the Bible calls 
elder. While Danny has the worldly title of senior pastor, understand that that title does not actually exist in Scripture. The elders we have are all to be pastors and share the mantle of authority and responsibility. And yet among them, we do have this concept of what we call the first among equals to be their voice and leader. For instance, when we look at the role of Peter among the apostles, none would argue that the apostles had a hierarchy. They were equal. They all had an equal testimony of who the Messiah was. And yet, when it came time for answers, when it came time for direction, Peter would summarize and would speak on their behalf. He would be the one to be that face. But you would not find times when Peter was telling the other apostles what to do or not to do. I don't have time today to go into the depths of what biblical eldership is and why it is so important for our church to get it right. Instead, I want to simply point out that our church needs faithful, godly men who would seek the office of elder in the biblical sense to pastor this church. Would our elders, would you please stand? That includes Danny and Verlin. Our elders are shy. <laughs> Don't hold that against them. Family, we need more pastors than Danny and Verlin. We need more pastors than Fred, Dave, BJ, Eric, Art, and Barney. You can sit, guys. Thanks. And men, the rest of us who are sitting here, I'm talking to you. If you're a faithful man who cares for this church, who has a desire to protect it from false teachers and bad doctrine, who cares about the well-being of our family, who can understand and teach Scripture, you need to consider aspiring to be an elder. I would encourage you, if that is you, to talk to our elders. You saw them all stand up. One was near you. That is your pew buddy, your pew neighbor, who you sit next to probably almost every week. So I would encourage you to talk to that elder. And what's nice is you can see that they were spread out. The elders are not a clique or a club that are all going to sit in one spot. Our elders are not perfect. Our elders don't know everything. But what we need our elders to be are faithful men. Committed to truth. Committed to sound doctrine. Committed to protecting. To being the gatekeepers in this wall. So please pray for your elders. It's a hard job. It's hard to come together in meetings and discuss the life of the church. It's hard to come together with different ideas, backgrounds, different timelines, and to wrestle. My recent experience in the hospital, watching a team of doctors try to decide what's best for my daughter, it's not all that different for elders. 
They can't see what's going on exactly in there. They're trying to make the best decision they can in order to make her life better. So pray for our elders. Pray for, our new, pray for new elders to raise up among us. Young men, aspire to be an elder. Our young men, our, our youth, should see the office of elder as a place of desire for them to be in. It should be a place that they're drawn to to say, that is an image of Christ loving His church. Loving His bride. So pray for the new elders to rise up among us to take on the mantle of protection and leadership. Moving on to our next leader, we see that the role of serving the church family, mostly often in a physical sense, is given to that of the deacon. Nehemiah recognized the need for qualified leaders who served the community. We see this in his appointing of temple servants who could vouch their lineage and their qualifications. And for the church, for our church, deacons are men and women who assist the elders in the care of the church family. If you're a deacon, would you stand? And I'm using the singular term deacon. I know our church designates deacon and deaconess. I'm using the singular term deacon. So if you're a deacon, would you stand? Everybody see him? <laughs> Thank you. The deacons in our church work hard. There's deacons out there who are working hard. They work hard at the hands and feet ministry of our church. And I can personally commend our church in the deacon service. Our family has been repeatedly blessed by deacons, by people who physically care for the church. How many of you, by raise of hands, have been blessed by a deacon serving our church? Got more blessing to do. <laughs> now, there are biblical qualifications for deacons. They're found in 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. I'd encourage you to read them to be familiar with them. And the thing with deacons and the thing with, with needs in churches is they change. They change as the church changes, as the church grows, as the church ages, as the church births. The needs change. And so the need for more deacons are going to change. If you, after reading those qualifications, and you find yourself acknowledging that, hey, this I'm not a perfect representation, but this represents me. This is very much who I am. And you have a strong desire to serve in a tangible way, don't wait until nomination, election, church season. Because if you ask our deacons, deacons, can you use more volunteers for things? Okay, you heard it. So what I ask is that you hook up with a deacon. Ask to be mentored. Ask to be trained. Ask to be loved on to show what it looks like to do hands and feet ministry. What it looks like to serve. Find ways to get close to these people. Learn to imitate them. 
It goes without saying that many hands make light work. And there is much work to do among our family. The final type of leader that I'm going to highlight are the leaders who disciple. These are our teachers. As the wall was completed, we see Ezra and Nehemiah begin piecing back together the priesthood and taking time to reteach the Torah, the law of God. It's clearly a priority and it marks the spiritual rebuilding of Israel. In our church, I can say that there is a dire need, and I'm not trying to be dramatic, but I'm, gonna, I'm using the word intentionally. There is a dire need for those who are committed to leading and discipling people. If you are a community life group leader, please stand. If you take a teaching role in our church through Bible studies or children's ministry, please stand. Take a look. Thank you. These individuals are taking the call to make disciples seriously. Again, they are not perfect. Teachers, do you know all the answers? (laughs) But I can say from talking with these teachers that they are convinced and committed to moving people to their next step in Christ. They are committed to discipling people. And what I want you to notice about that group is that it's small. It's small, but they're faithful. There are days and weeks where the teachers among us are tired. They couldn't quite find enough time to get their lesson 100%. They didn't spend as much time studying what they needed to because other things got in the way. But yet, they're faithful. Faithful to bring the Word. Faithful to be the beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. And this is an area of great need in our church. I have recently been asked a few times about finding a community life group, finding a Bible study that's either this or that for this type of people or that type of people. And multiple times I've had to say, please wait and pray. Because I don't have one for you. I am out of leaders. The groups are full. And the need that you see is a real need. But what I need is someone to disciple that group. Someone to disciple that age group. Someone to disciple that circumstance. Young families, women, men, neighborhoods. What we need are qualified people who have the gift of teaching and the passion to disciple people. We need people to prioritize that and to make themselves available. I shared before about being a fat leader. Faithful, available, and teachable. We also have another piece to this. And it's we need people 
who recognize and are willing to prioritize learning and being discipled. It's really easy for you to think that discipleship is loading a podcast on your phone and listening to it. It's really easy to deceive yourself in thinking watching YouTube is discipleship. And guess what? It's not. You can listen to as many sermons as you want through podcasting. You can listen to as many and watch as many YouTube videos, buy as many DVD studies as you want, and that is not discipleship. Discipleship is two by two. Discipleship is a relationship. It's you coming close to a brother or a sister and rubbing off on each other. It's being held accountable. The other person on the side of the camera can't ask you, did you actually read your Bible this week? Have you prayed about that? They can't ask you that. And our culture is remiss to think that that cheap copy is what we need. You don't need more podcasts. You don't need more YouTube videos. You don't need more DVD studies. What you need is discipleship. Someone who can speak into your life, who can know you, who can pray for you and help you move in your next step in Christ. So would you prayerfully consider if you are that leader? If you are one who says, you know what, I've learned a few things. I've got a few scrapes and scars that can show. I've wrestled with Scripture. I know what it is to be a young mom and wrestle with prioritizing my family needs and my own spiritual needs. I know what it is to be a young father to feel like I'm messing my kids up every day that somehow they're not going (laughs) to grow up and be normal. If that's you, answer the call. Talk to Verlin or myself. We'd love to get to know you and see if that's you. And I'd encourage you that if that's not you, that you seek those people. Seek those who can disciple you. Seek those who can speak into your life. Yes, it's vulnerable. Yes, it takes sacrifice. But when we want something, we do it, right? When we prioritize it, we do it. If you want to go to the Bills game, you'll you'll get there. Right? I don't like the Bills, so I'll never go to a Bills game. I don't really like football. I was waiting for it, but it didn't happen. When we want something and we desire something, we make it a priority. And so it may mean that you have to cancel some things in your life to make yourself available. It may mean you have to prioritize some other things to make it work. But it's important. Now we're going to move to the second major thing that Nehemiah was doing in this section. From first, from raising up faithful leaders to now building a faithful family. I want everyone to hang on to their pews for a little bit, to pay attention. I want you to, to hang on because I'm going to try to explain this as best as I can. Some of what you are going to hear is going to be familiar. And that's okay and that's normal. But I also want to push your eyes to a higher view. Or as 
many of us learned in a recent men's breakfast, as Dr. Altman would say, a Maryland view. If you don't know what that means, hunt him down and ask him. I'm not going to explain it. It's better for you to go find him and ask what a Maryland view is. Let us consider then what Nehemiah and Israel have physically accomplished in their current situation. First, Ezra has rebuilt the temple and is teaching the law again to the people. Nehemiah has completed his wall and he has set the gates. He has appointed faithful leaders to protect and serve and to disciple the people. But there is a missing piece. Listen to verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. What we see here is that the kingdom of God, Jerusalem in this case, had a barrier, had a dividing line created between what was in the kingdom and what was out of the kingdom. And in that wall, there was a gate that made all the difference. The kingdom was described as few, with no dwellings being built in it. The challenge for Nehemiah and the leaders was to get the children of Israel to come into the walls, to come into the kingdom. Because they were living in the towns around. Our first application is to understand that this is an illustration of the kingdom of God as we understand it. There is a distinction between the domain of darkness and the kingdom of God. And the only way to get in the kingdom is through the gate, who is Jesus Christ. Jesus taught us this exact imagery in John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Family, we have been given the task to fill the kingdom. To be a place in the midst of the domain of darkness that is a refuge and a nation unto itself. Jesus is our gate. As we call on top of the wall, we call people to enter through Him. And only those who come through Him are legitimate citizens in the kingdom. Family, our work is not done until every single sheep is gathered in. Our work is not done until the shepherd says, well done. I have not lost a single one the Father has given. Our work is not done until the kingdom is complete. As Wade pointed out last week, and Verlin and Danny have been hammering home each week, our mission remains the same. Our calling to reach the lost does not change regardless of the enemy's actions or regardless of our own failures. The mission is the same. Here's something to be considered. How did they prevent enemies from coming in? How did they prevent illegitimate priests from taking over? They used the book of genealogies. These are likely books that recorded family lineages back to the 12 tribes, back to the original 12. 
We can understand that if you could prove your heritage was tied to the names and are found in that book, you were considered legit. You were considered welcomed into the kingdom. If your lineage was suspect or your name was not found, you were not considered part of the kingdom. There was a measure of distrust in who are you. Family, we're told in Revelation 13 and 21 about the Lamb's book of life. The imagery used here is of a sealed book containing the names of God's elect. Those who are in His kingdom. That book will be used to determine who enters the kingdom at the judgment seat and who does not. And just like the book of genealogies, only those whose names who are in the book get in. While we do not have access to this book and we are not the judge, our job is to call from the wall all those who hear their names read from that book. Those who are the sheep will hear the shepherd's voice and they'll come through the gate. Friends, there are more people waiting outside of the wall to hear their names are written in the book. There are more people waiting to hear the shepherd's voice fall on their ear and come out of the domain of darkness and enter into the kingdom of the Son. And we are to be faithful and to stand on that wall and to call. We are called to be faithful and seek out the sheep outside to come in and out to seek out the sheep that are too far to hear from the wall. We are to call despite our failures. We are to call despite our family's failures. Forgiving the debts that we have against each other. As Danny taught on. A few weeks ago. We call despite our enemies' plans and attempts to discourage us as Wade taught last year. There are more names in that book that need to be among us. The mission is too critical to allow ourselves to be consumed and devoured within our walls. So we join the call to shout from the wall, No Jesus Christ! No life! We join the call on the inside of the wall to build faithful homes, sanctified and holy, growing in Christ. Join the call inside the wall to go outside and rescue the sheep that are lost in the domain of darkness, but desperately need to be found. Our response is to be faithful to our call to know Jesus, to grow in Jesus, and to go for Jesus. Because the work is not done. As I close, I want to close highlighting the spirit of generosity found in Nehemiah as part of our response. Upon the completion of the work, we see the community respond in a mind-blowing act of generosity to secure their nation and their future work. If you total up just the value of the gold and silver that they gave that are listed here, it's, it would be worth $21 million today. Alright, this is where we go to the application, right? We'll set a low bar, just a million. No, please don't, un- please, please don't misunderstand. What we see is a community that from top to bottom, starting with the leaders, the governor himself, and then the heads of households, gave sacrificially to secure the future work and supply the needs 
of those who were serving. As you reflect on this, don't misunderstand. That is not tithing. This is not an application to give 10% because tithing was nowhere in view in what occurred at that moment. The generosity in view is something different. It has nothing to do with that. Instead, it's a moment of national commitment to the overall goal to secure the kingdom. Everyone gave. From the greatest to the least. And it's a summary of the sacrifice and giving that has been occurring since Nehemiah arrived. Of building and working. Family, how committed are we to a vision of a completed kingdom? Are we willing and prepared to give generously for the kingdom? Have you positioned your finances and times to be able to be generous? How many of you would agree that only so much comes in each week, each paycheck? Right? And you're to steward it. Right? You control what goes in, what goes out. If you live your life in a way that you have strapped yourself with so many things, whether it's pleasures, debt, you name it, that you can't be generous, maybe consider freeing up some resources to be generous. If you have filled your time with so many things, so many hobbies, so many other activities that you do that you don't have time to be generous in the kingdom, it may be time to cancel some things to make yourself available to be generous for the kingdom. Position yourself to be generous with your finances and time for the sake of the kingdom. And so I leave you with four challenges to take away. And I know we covered a lot and I've talked a long time. I give you my sincere thanks for sitting there and not just getting up and leaving or throwing things at me. So I leave you with these four challenges. First, our church needs leaders to protect, serve, and disciple. Commit to pray and be willing to answer that call. Second, commit to knowing Jesus and the mission He has sent us on. Take time to learn what that mission is. How you have been specifically gifted to fulfill it and how you can take steps to be obedient. Three, commit to growing in Jesus through being an active part of His community and growing in Christ-likeness. Your personal life choices and behavior, they have an impact on our mission. When you are in the community and around us, you reflect us. You reflect your King. Are you setting a good example, an example that draws people into the kingdom? And finally, commit to going for Jesus generously. Wherever He calls, wherever He reveals the opportunity. Commit to give generously and sacrificially for His kingdom. Plan your life around kingdom things. Parents, commit to shepherding your families, considering the kingdom. Plan your time and your resources around matters and things that matter in the scope of eternity. Family, the work is far from over. May we be found faithful when He returns. Amen.